We're going to start uh, today in Luke chapter 1. As we get started on this series, uh, my, my father-in-law's from England. Some of you know him, uh, the one with the accent in the back. Uh, and uh, he's been in the States for so long that his accent's kind of warped into, it sounds almost like Australian, so people think he's from Australia. It's great. Um, this summer, he and, and uh, my mother-in-law are going back to England and kind of going back visiting um, the motherland. I, I don't think you call England the motherland, but uh, they're going back on this trip. And so, like, Marcy and I are trying to get out there uh, for a week or so and, and really excited. I, I've gotten to travel a ton. I was a missions pastor before as a church planner, and I've got to travel the world. Marcy has gone to, like, Cabo, and that's it. So um, she hasn't gotten to travel as much. But as we're kind of, like, looking at this trip... Um, a, a, a couple things, I was, you know, I, I love history, so I'm, like, researching all these places that I want to go. Like, I want to go to York and see the castles, and Marcy wants to go to Buckingham Palace and see, you know, all the stuff from, you know, Entertainment Magazine, and, you know. So we, uh, but as I was kind of researching different things to see, um, something came up uh, over in Dublin that, that caught my attention, and that's kind of the capital of Ireland. And, you know, the number one tourist attraction in Dublin is the zoo which surprised me, like with all the history there and all the, the pubs and, you know, castles and stuff, the zoo. Uh, but the second thing that was kind of the most uh, visited uh, spot in Dublin, and this is one of the, the, of all the British Isles, one of the most popular things to see, is this thing called the Book of Kells. I don't know if you've heard of the, the Book of Kells, uh, but the Book of Kells was uh, a, a book that was put together in like the ninth century, uh, early eight, 800s A.D., um, and it has uh, all four of the Gospels uh, together, and it's been kind of illustrated, and it's, you know, middle, medieval art, and um, just, a, it, it's, probably, it's considered kind of like the oldest book in the world that's been preserved together. And it's hosted at Trinity College, and there's this exhibit there where you can go in and see it. And as I was reading about this, I was like, this is fascinating, I don't know if I'll get a chance to go over there. Um, but, but not only is this kind of uh, hosted at Trinity College, you can go in and see this, this book that was written in the early 800s. So it's actually closer to the time of Christ than, than we are, than, than it is to us. Um, when, when you go in there, the people that have put this like, exhibit together, they don't let you just come in and see the Book of Kells. Uh, what, what, what has been uh, put together in this exhibit as it's on display is you go into this room and it takes you through this story. And as you start to go through the story, you start to, to understand a little bit about like medieval Christianity. Um, you get to, to hear the story of how the, the Irish, um, the, the Irish monks, how they spent uh, years of their life uh, writing, writing down scripture, preserving scripture. It, it survives like the Vikings. It survives all sorts of crazy civil war, everything, um, because of the sacrifices they made to preserve uh, this sacred text. And and as you, as you go through this exhibit, uh, the, what, the people that put it together, what they want is for you to, to have a great appreciation for the story so that by the time you come to the Book of Kells, your, your heart is prepared. You're, you're just in awe of how they've been able to preserve this and how important this book is uh, for our story as, as followers of Jesus. And you get to this place where you, you finally experience it going through this story, and it's like your, your heart is just... Uh, mesmerized with wonder and awe of, of coming to this old book. You have this great, deep appreciation after going through the story. I wanted to, to, to share that because when, when we start this gospel of Luke, Luke is a story about the life of Jesus. It's this gospel account of Jesus' life. But when Luke starts his story, he doesn't just jump in with Jesus right away. 
He, he takes us through this story of, of preparing our hearts for when Jesus comes. And so when we, we start the, the, the story of Jesus, the name Jesus doesn't even appear for the first 30 verses. And his birth doesn't even come until a lot's happened in the story. And what Luke is doing is he's setting up the story. Is he's, he's creating these echoes and these parallels to the Old Testament story of, of Abraham and what God's doing through his people and these things that, that are happening. And you start to, to hear the echoes in the story of Jesus. And he starts with uh, two characters named Zachariah and Elizabeth. And I want to jump into their story today. And uh, as, we, as we get ready for, for Christmas, have this kind of help prepare and form our hearts. So we'll start in Luke chapter 1. And uh, verse 5 says, In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So this story is set up with a couple of characters, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we find out that they both kind of come from the priestly line. Now, this is important because in this place in Jerusalem, uh, there's, there's a temple that's there. And, and the people that serve in the temple are priests or from the priestly line. And if you remember the story of the Old Testament, there was a temple that was built that was destroyed, and God's people went into exile, and then they come back, and this is a rebuilt temple. So it's kind of like the second temple. And what they're doing is they're, they're serving here, and, and they're a part of this, this heritage because of like their bloodline that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And we find out that Zechariah comes from this line, and Elizabeth does as well. And so they're, they're not like royalty, but there's something unique and special about who they are because of their family in this story. And it says here that they are, they are blameless. Both of them were righteous. They're observing the Lord's commandments blamelessly. These are like salt of the earth people. They're just good people. And what you find is as Luke is telling us the story about Elizabeth and Zechariah is that he, he kind of like wins our, our, our affection towards them. We, there's this gentleness, this softness to them where they're the kind of people that you just want good things to happen because they're just good people. Down to earth, salt of the earth. And yet there's also an issue here. We find that even though they're blameless before God, they're barren. They can't have children. And this is something that they desire. And, and, it's, and it's interesting how it sets up this idea of blameless and barrenness. They, they've done nothing wrong, but there's something that their heart desires, and it hasn't been met yet. And we know that kind of throughout Scripture, when, you know, they're, they're not necessarily understanding, like, why... Some people get pregnant, why some others don't. But there's kind of this cloud that hovers over them. They're blameless, and yet they're not able to have kids. What's going on there? So they have to kind of deal with this. If God is in control and divine, why hasn't he allowed this to happen in our life yet or ever? And we find that they're older, and so they've kind of just given up on it's not going to happen. It's, they're, they're beyond their years. I think it's interesting that uh, their, their life, I, I've heard this called kind of like it's a righteous emptiness. We've done nothing wrong. We've, in fact, we've done everything right, and this really thing that our heart desires just hasn't been accomplished yet. And I don't know kind of why God hasn't let that happen, and I don't think we've done anything wrong. There's this hope that something would happen, and it just hasn't happened yet. And there's kind of this righteous emptiness. And I think a lot of followers of Jesus in today's world experience that. We know that we're doing the things that we're supposed to be doing 
the things that we've been called to do, we've been faithful to that. So why hasn't this thing had life? Or why hasn't this thing that I've desired happened? Their situation seems impossible, and as we hear that, it kind of like stirs our sympathy towards them. It also does something else. As Luke is setting up kind of these echoes of the Old Testament, it reminds us of these stories in the Old Testament where it points out that certain people are barren, like Abraham and Sarah are unable to have kids, or or Rachel and Jacob, or Hannah. And and what we find is that, that in these Old Testament stories, and what Luke is doing here is reminding us that there's this this impossibleness, this barrenness, the barren woman in Scripture is this powerful starting point for the Spirit of God to begin working in his people. In the same way that that happened with Abraham and Sarah and Rachel and Jacob, something here is all of a sudden budding and starting to happen. You would hear this and you would hear echoes of the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, God God takes these impossible situations and gives life to them. And also what we find is that this, this situation that might seem impossible for, for Elizabeth and Zechariah, they've been serving, they're blameless, and yet they're barren. Uh, it, there, there's something bigger going on with this narrative, like the people of God in this time period. We find that Herod is king. Well, who is Herod? At, at this time, the, the, the place that they're living is controlled by the Roman Empire, this, one of the most powerful empires the world's ever seen. And they would control people with their their legions, their military force. They would conquer people. They would crush anyone that would rebel, and they would call it peace. This is the Pax Romana. It's peaceful if you're Roman. For everyone else, you probably wouldn't call it peace. And they have established this man named Herod, who's kind of like their, uh, I don't know, like they, they, he, he's, king, he's the king here, but they're kind of pulling the strings on Herod. So all of God's people are, are going through this experience where they just, there's a lot of despair. We've tried to be faithful. We've tried to do everything right. We've returned to our home, and now we're conquered by this foreign power, and, and we're not in control. And the guy that is in control makes us all feel terrible. We don't like what he's doing, and we know that he's just appeasing Rome with everything that he does. And there's this, where is God at? Why hasn't God spoken? Why isn't God moving amongst our people now? So what's happening with uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth might even be a, a story of despair with all of the people at this time period. And yet, these are the kind of places where God always seems to work. God's spirit hovers over places that seem humanly hopeless. The spirit of God begins to work in empty, void, dark places. And I wonder, with your own life, how you've experienced places of despair. Where you feel like, I've been blameless, I've done everything right, there's this righteous emptiness. Why aren't things you know, happening in my life the way that I desire them to happen. Even like these, I'm not talking about just like selfish ambition, but these things that I know, these longings of my heart. God, where are you? Why haven't you moved? Why aren't you working? The story sets up with Zachariah and Elizabeth. They're blameless and yet they're barren. It goes on to say, verse 8, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go to the, into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So Zechariah is a priest. He's on duty. He comes to the temple to burn incense. Remember that the passage Marcy read earlier, it was talking about there was always going to be priests that were burning incense and sacrifices, and this is still going. That was, read, that was hundreds of years before then, but this is this duty, this sacred duty that Zechariah is now fulfilling. 
And what we find is that when they would burn incense uh, in this temple, the closer you would get into the center, into the Holy of Holies, only certain people could get closer. So there were there different tiers that you could get into. And the thought was that God's presence resided here in the Holy of Holies. And so to get closer to God, uh, it, it, not everyone got to do it. And for Zechariah to burn incense, they says that they, they drew lots to say, you're it. I don't know if that was like an honor or if that was like, oh, no, I'm going closer to God. Um, that's a little bit scary. But, it, but this was a custom that they would do because what they would say is, whoever is going to do this, what we need to know is that, that God is deciding this is the person that's going to burn incense. So they would draw lots to kind of circumvent human will to say, Lord, you choose who's going in here to, to do the burning of the incense. And Zechariah draws the lot. And he goes in, and he, as he's doing uh, what's customary to do, like going in to, to, to burn the incense, here's what happens next. It says in verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zachariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. Now imagine what that experience would be like. Like we've got like, uh, uh, this isn't necessarily the Holy of Holies, you know, this is a cafeteria, but we have curtains. And the hope is that when you come in from the outside and you see the cafeteria floor and you're like, oh, I'm going to church, and then you walk into here, you're like, oh, this is actually kind of nice. Like, I hope it's nice. And, like, you walk in, and we try to limit distractions. And, like, when you walk into something, and, and for us, this is a place of worship. But we kind of know what to expect when we walk in here. Imagine all of a sudden this angel appears, and it starts speaking. Like, okay, well, yeah, this is where God should show up and do something like that, right? Because this is kind of a sacred space, but he's not really going to show up and do something like that. And then he does. And Zachariah is terrified. We have four children, uh, four small children, and we are still in the phase of life where you wake up at two in the morning and one of them's staring at you right in the face. <laughs> Happened the other night to Marcy, and she jumped. And Ezra, I have no idea how long he'd been sit- sitting there, standing there. <laughs> But he was just, you know, doing this kind of thing, staring right at Marcy. She jumps. She freaks out. Her heart's pounding. I jump. I freak out. Like, when, because you're not supposed to be there. Like, and, like, what are you doing? You're, like, staring at me. Creepy kid. Go back to bed. And um, that happens a couple times a month, probably. And you, you've probably experienced that when all of a sudden something, the kid just appears out of the middle of nowhere, and he's staring at you. I can't imagine what Zachariah was feeling. He goes into this place, he's burning the incense, and all of a sudden this angel of the Lord appears to him. And he's terrified because that's not supposed to happen. Or is it? If he's in the place where God's presence is supposed to be felt more than any other place on earth, all of a sudden he's shocked that God would actually show up, that the angel of the Lord would show up. And it, like, it just like blows his mind. But then we also understand how that could be terrifying. And it says that he was startled and he was gripped with fear. And then verse 13 says this, the angel of the Lord said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What we'll find in these Christmas stories is God's angels are always showing up saying, don't be afraid. God's in the midst of doing something and it, it probably feels terrifying. Don't be afraid. And then he says this line, which I think is one of the, the most uh, life-giving lines in all of scripture, it says, your prayer has been heard. Doesn't tell us what he's praying for. I don't know if this is him and Elizabeth's prayer. I don't know if this is the people that are waiting outside their prayer. I don't know if this is all of Israel's prayer for God to move. But the angel says, your prayer has been heard. 
It says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Really creative name. I was reading something else, like when they start to say, his name's John. They're like, John, nobody's named John. Why would you name him John? It's like, there was a time when John wasn't common. Like, uh, anyways, okay. Uh, he will be a joy. And I, I love John Christie if you're here. You have a great name. <laughs> okay, verse 14. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he is to never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Who is this guy? What in the world? He, he's saying there's going to be something that's happening. Your son, you're going to have a son, and there's something unique about this son. This son is going to have a calling on his life. It's going to be anointed. God's Holy Spirit is going to be with it even before it's born. And he will bring back many people, many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Imagine hearing that from an angel. You're going to have a son, and this is what that son is going to do, and that son is going to be like. It's going to prepare the way for the Lord and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Your prayer has been heard. Something here is happening. God is on the move. The prayer is this prelude to divine revelation, hearing from God. He sees this angel, hears from the angel, and God speaks, and God is going to act. Your prayers have been heard, and God is doing something about it, and something is happening and is about to happen, and your son is going to be a huge part of it. And he's going to prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah that's coming to the world. I mean, if you, like, I can't even imagine, first of all, there's an angel speaking to you, which would blow your mind and, and terrify you. And then there's this message about how something's going to happen to your life that's going to completely, radically change your life and change history. You, you imagine, like, what he's, he's taking all of this in, Zechariah. What is he thinking? And here's, here's his words in in verse 18, he says, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is along in years. That's his response. I don't know if it takes a while for him to respond or if he responds right away, but his first response is, is how could this be? you got to be kidding me. Not like, I, I mean, I think I would be humbled, overjoyed, overwhelmed. His response is, what? You got the wrong guy. You do know who I am. You know how old I am. You know how we're not able to have kids, right? You're talking to me? His response is this response of, of doubt. Overwhelmed by fear, terrified, and then this response, how could this be? How do you know this is going to happen? And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now... And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So this is a response from Gabriel. And if you are Zechariah and you know kind of the Old Testament and you know that God speaks through these angels that appear, you know that there's a lot of kind of messengers that come throughout the Old Testament. But there's one messenger that comes when something really big is up, and that's Gabriel. So Zechariah is like, Oh, you're Gabriel. 
Like, this isn't like, you know, Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life trying to get his wings. Like, this is a big deal. And Zachariah's like, oh, okay, Gabriel has shown up. And he kind of like wants this sign, and Gabriel goes, I'll give you a sign. And here's what's going to happen. And, and there's this humor to this. I was reading some commentators that said there's this, there's this like humor the, of God that we, sometimes we take the scripture so serious and realize like here's what God's doing. He's going to make Zechariah mute. He's not going to be able to speak until this is fulfilled, and that will be his sign. Like Zechariah wants this, God, you're moving in my life. Show me a sign. Have you ever done that, God? I would like to see, give me a sign, and then I'll know, and then I'll do it. Like, we, we see, like, people in Scripture making, like, bargains with God. And, but what we find here in the Gospel of Luke is sometimes God decides to initiate something and give people a sign. But in Luke, when people ask for a sign, it just never seems to turn out well. There's, like, three or four incidences where they, like, show me a sign. And God's like, okay, you're mute. You're going to be mute until there's your sign. And you're like, oh, great. So just side note, like, be careful, like, what you ask for, right? But, like, I will show you what this. So he makes him mute. He can't speak. Until this is all fulfilled. The scripture goes on. Verse 11, it says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Again, this humor, like, can you imagine, like, first of all, what's taking so long? Zechariah comes out, and he can't talk about what happened. He's mute. He's got to use sign language. I don't know, like, what the universal, you know, sign for angel is. Like, is he, is he trying to, like, like, this must be just a ridiculous scene as they're trying to figure out, like, why aren't you talking? And he can't speak. And he's giving them signs and they're realizing, okay, something happened here. Because Zechariah probably isn't someone who sensationalizes things. Something is going on. And they realize that something is going on. And then verse 23 says, but... His time for service was completed. When his time of service was completed, so he stays there like he's supposed to, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth came, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion and says, the Lord has done this for me. In, those, in these days, he has shown me favor. He has taken my disgrace, away my disgrace among the people. So she becomes pregnant and this plan starts to unfold. And it's interesting because Elizabeth's response is very different than Zachariah's. She's humbled. She's overjoyed. She sees that God has taken something that seems somewhat disgraceful, and she's experienced the grace of God. This thing that she's hoped for is now happening. And she's humbled, and her response is this, this joy of what God is doing. God's favor has replaced this disfavor with people. His grace has displaced kind of this disgrace among the people. And Elizabeth uh, just, just kind of soaks this up. If you were Luke and you were writing about, you know, here, here, where are we finding ourselves in the story when God is doing something in your life? There's, there's a couple of responses. There's Zechariah's response, which is full of doubt, uncertainty. There's this heavenly plan that unfolds, and he, hit, he meets it with a human answer. And then there's this response from Elizabeth of humility, of, of, of honor, saying, the Lord is doing something here, and I get to be a part of it. And it begs to, us to, like, when God does something in our life, how do we respond? In what ways do we receive these things that he's called us to do? Both for Zechariah and Elizabeth, though, I think what, what is apparent here is this thing that they have been praying for and hoping for is unfolding, and it's happening. And God is setting this cosmic plan into place, and yet at the same time, he's, he's meeting the needs and the longings of these people who have been faithful to him. 
It's this big cosmic plan, and yet it starts in kind of the heart and soul of, this, of these people who have been faithful. There's something very macro happening and something very micro, something big and something small that's happening as Jesus starts to come into the world. And what's happening here is that hope has entered this impossible situation. The situation of despair, of, of just kind of giving up for Elizabeth and Zechariah is now met with hope. The situation for God's people who are crying out, hoping for God to move, hoping for God to do something, all of a sudden it's met with hope. God takes a situation that seems impossible and he starts doing something that is impossible for the good of his will and his plan. And the people start to experience the wonder of hope. This woman who is barren is now having a baby. God is on the move. When we think about kind of the wonder of hope, how hope creates wonder in our life, as we head towards Christmas, there's a couple things I think that we need to learn from this story. The first is this, is that Everyday faithfulness matters. God doesn't work through these extraordinary people who are the heroes. He, he works through ordinary, mundane situations, people who are faithful. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says they're blameless before God. They're, just, they're doing what they're supposed to do. And Zechariah is serving at the temple, doing what he's supposed to do. And when you're just doing that over and over again, sometimes it just seems mundane and routine, and yet you're putting yourself in the situation where God, you can have this encounter with God. The faithfulness of our everyday life, our relationship with Jesus, following Jesus, we are putting ourselves in this place where we're just open to receive what God's doing. The faithfulness, everyday faithfulness matters. So be sensitive to what God is doing in your life. These people are just being faithful. God shows up. The second thing is that everyday prayers are heard. I wonder how long Elizabeth and Zechariah have been praying. I wonder how long they've been just lifting up this request, hoping that God would move, hoping that God would, would do something. Years. They're older in, your, in life. This thing that they're praying for, finally the angel shows up and says, your prayer's been heard. It hasn't fallen on deaf ears. God has understood your situation, understands it, and he's, he's doing something about it. How often we, we just give up on praying for things because we think, well, maybe this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to be accomplished. And yet God hears all of our prayers. Everyday prayers are heard, so we should pray bold prayers to take all of our requests to God. The third thing is that Everyday yearning of the heart will be met. Now, this is important, not, not kind of our own selfish ambition. Like, there's a lot of things I want to see accomplished, like the Phoenix Suns winning a championship. <laughs> Probably not the yearning of my heart. But there's things that my heart yearns for that it desires. There's this, you know, the righteous emptiness that you feel, that you just long for the things of God. You long for the things of eternity to be accomplished in the lives of people that you're connected with in our world today. You just have these hopes and desires and these yearnings. And what we find is that God meets them, often in his timing. But God meets the yearnings and the longings of our heart when they are for the things that he desires, his kingdom. And we seek first his kingdom. So be hopeful. Journey through this life with hope. Because we have this God who hears us and this God that meets our needs. There's this pastor from 
Michigan that teaches at a college that was commentating on this passage, and he says this about Luke 1. This text brings a bit of news, news that is too good to be true. The news too good to be true that God promises, his promises are reliable and unpredictable. The news reveals uh, as God's spirit is hovering and speaking over places that are dead or dying and speaking a new word. The news promises that even before he is born, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit when talking about John. It is unbelievable, laughable, and absurd, but that is the way God moves. And when he does, the movement stirs and silences and mobilizes. It removes shame and disgrace and replaces these with wonder. God's interruptions fill emptiness with hope and promise where there is none. And only God could do that. It is there in the small and unexpected places that the ancient promises of God are made fresh and new. It is there in the small and unexpected places that the ancient promises of God are made fresh and new. The old Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, uh, has these words, and I'll end with this. It says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. As we prepare, prepare our hearts for Jesus, for the advent, for the incarnation, this holy longing of God coming into the world, into our circumstances, and moving. I don't know where you're at today in your story, but maybe you have this righteous emptiness, you have this barrenness, even though you're blameless, and you have this, this desire for God to bring to life things in your life. I'm not sure where you're at today, but we're going to spend some time just praying and reflecting on these words in this story. When God comes into the world, and his son Jesus, he starts to open up barren wombs. He starts to bring life to things that are hopeless. God is on the move. This God is on the move in your life as well. And we experience that through Jesus. Tim's going to come back up and we're going to close with a time of communion. Communion represents the story of Christmas, the incarnation, that God came into the world in flesh and in blood. And we take this piece of bread that represents this God who became flesh and blood for us to show us what he is like. And this God that loved the world so much that he came into the world, that he takes all the brokenness, all the things that are uh, not as they should be, the things that we have messed up, and on the cross breaks himself open and pours himself out so that we can be put back together. There's great life that comes from this cross, from this resurrection, from this story in the Gospels. And today, when you come to the table, our hope is whatever these, these places of despair in your soul, these righteous emptiness emotions that we go through as followers of Jesus, this weariness of being faithful and not seeing things accomplished. Today we come to the table and say, Lord, would you just breathe life into me, into my soul? We practice open communion here at Desert City, so if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table. We have two tables, one on each side of the room. When you're ready, you can move to the table and take this communion on your, on your own. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this story of the Incarnation of you coming into the world. And as we even start the story and we look at these characters leading up to your birth, 
we see that you have been at work in the lives of your people throughout history. That this cosmic rescue plan that is set in place is a massive, it's big, it's macro, and yet at the same time it starts and it meets us on this personal level. Sometimes, Lord, you show up in surprising ways and we're not ready for it. But we ask, Lord, that you would show up, that you would move, that you would fill us with hope, and that we would be in wonder and in awe of your work. Meet us here today, Lord. Let's send your sons and we pray.